The show you are about to hear was recorded on December 5th, 2016. Sadly, on December 8th, we lost a true American and international hero, and it is with a heavy heart that we must mention the passing of astronaut John Glenn. Born in Ohio in 1921, Glenn began by flying combat missions during World War II and the Korean War as a member of the U.S. Marines. He then became a test pilot for the Marines before being selected as part of NASA's first class of astronauts, dubbed the Mercury 7. In February of 1962, two people had already orbited the Earth, both from the Soviet Union. The United States needed a man that would actually orbit the Earth, unlike their previous suborbital hops, if they wanted to get back into what would later be called the space race. On February 20th, 1962, he climbed aboard his tiny Friendship 7 capsule on top of an Atlas rocket in Cape Canaveral, Florida. After a few hours of delays, the candle was lit, sending John Glenn not only into space, but into the history books as the first American to orbit the Earth. The flight lasted just under five hours, but paved the way for longer space flights and eventually became an important milestone that would help to land men on the moon just seven years later. Glenn continued his service to his country as a congressman, serving his home state of Ohio for four terms, but he wasn't done yet. In 1998, Glenn would fly into space one more time, this time aboard the much roomier Space Shuttle Discovery, and would secure another momentous achievement as the oldest person to fly into space at age 77. In 2012, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian honor in the United States. Sadly, Glenn passed away on December 8th at the age of 95. We at Talking Space send our condolences to his wife Annie and the entire Glenn family. In the words of Michigan Troll before his first historic Earth-orbiting mission, Godspeed, John Glenn. And now, on to the show. We choose to go to the moon. to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 813 for the week of Monday, December 5th, 2016, nearing the end of the year already. I am Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Cassie Tamanini, aka Craftlass. Welcome, Cassie. Hello, it's great to be here, and just a warning to all the listeners, if you hear a bunch of animals, it's because I'm essentially staying in a home zoo this week. So apologies in advance. <laughs> Aren't they already hearing a bunch of animals? They're hearing us. <laughs> exactly. That's why I figure they won't <laughs> mind. <laughs> and welcome as well, Kat Robinson. Very happy to be here as I... Uh, take a small break from the end of our semester here in Tuscaloosa and happy to be here to talk about space with you too. Well, we've got an exciting show. Unfortunately, Jean and Mark have other commitments and are unable to join us tonight, but hopefully they'll be back very soon. But in the meantime, we need to get to some big space news that's happened recently. And we'll start with the Progress 65 launch. 
the resupply mission to the International Space Station launched this past Thursday, December 1st, 2016, at 9.51 a.m. Eastern Time, which is 14.51 GMT, and was 8.51 p.m. local time when it launched out of the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. Launching aboard the Soyuz, it made its way up into orbit with the first stage, and the second stage firing all well until it came time to the third stage. About six and a half minutes after liftoff, telemetry was lost with the vehicle, and in turn, the vehicle did not make it to orbit, crashing back down. Engineers don't know exactly what the problem was yet. Uh, all that they know is that telemetry became very ratty and then was lost. The vehicle did indeed burn up in the atmosphere, and that... Well, everything was going well until then, and those supplies will not be reaching the International Space Station. So, a pretty major failure. And uh, one thing of note, in terms of the record for the International Space Station's resupply mission so far, and this is what I found really interesting, is that in the first 16 years of operations of the International Space Station so far, the only major failure up until that point was a progress failure in 2011. That was back in August. Since then, there was the orbital ATK failure in October 2014, with the Antares failing. There was another Russian Progress spacecraft that spun out of control after a bad separation in April of 2015. There was the SpaceX Falcon 9 that disintegrated midair, uh, just as it was about to separate the first stage in June of 2015. And now another failure in 2016. So that's four failures in five years. That's a little scary. It is. It is. I remember after sort of losing the Cygnus and then losing the Dragon and then losing the Progress, I remember Gerstenmeier, I think it was, who said, we planned for this to happen. We planned to lose cargo resupplies. We, we know that can happen, but we don't expect it to all happen so quickly. So I have to think that that's sort of something in the forefront of their minds and certainly puts a lot more pressure on the next cargo resupply missions coming up, both from Japan and the Cygnus that is scheduled on board an Atlas V. Yeah, that was actually on Talking Space. We talked to Bill Gerstenmeier shortly after those failures at the CASIS conference in Boston back in 2015. So if you want to hear his actual comments, go ahead and listen back to that episode. It was really interesting to hear him talk about that. But yeah, they don't expect this many failures. They do expect failures. So the crew on board the International Space Station is just fine. They have supplies. But back then, it was getting a little close where if they didn't have one launch in six months, they were going to have to consider bringing the crew back home. And again, this was back in 2015. Since then, there have been a few successful resupply missions, including the Orbital ATK's return to flight aboard the Antares and two other flights of theirs on an Atlas V. And then there was the CRS-9 launch, 8 and 9 launches with SpaceX as well. So there is no supply... There isn't a shortage of supplies, but it does raise some questions, especially since this Soyuz is very similar to the one that astronauts launch on as well. Certainly a concern, but also sort of a bit of relief knowing that at least for our program here in the United States, that we are making progress on commercial crew development. 
So I know that certainly one one problem that we talk about a lot on the show, and we've talked about it in terms of, of the cargo resupply missions, is the importance of redundancy. And right now, we don't really have redundancy in the ability to access the International Space Station. And so hopefully in 2018, we will have return to flight um, or first flights of commercial crew from American soil But not only will that be a boon for our own program here in the United States, but also will be an important redundancy that we've been lacking since the end of shuttle. Very true. Yeah. Brings me back to at the end of the shuttle program. And if you're a longtime Talking Space listener, you'll know we talk about this quite often. Back when Russia was bragging about the era of Soyuz reliability very shortly after the end of the shuttle program. And then that first progress failure happened in August of 2011. Now here we are with two more progress failures since then. Admittedly, they have had some successes. This was the third progress flight this year. But nonetheless, it'll be nice to have, like you're saying, redundancy. And we do have the redundancy in that there are other people with supplies at the International Space Station. There is Orbital ATK. Uh, SpaceX hopefully will be back up and running, and we'll be talking about that very shortly and getting their supplies to the space station soon. And there is a resupply mission scheduled to the International Space Station aboard the Japanese HTV-6. That resupply vehicle is scheduled to launch on a Japanese H-2B rocket on December 9th at 8.26 a.m. Eastern, which is 13.26 GMT. Now, I just have to say that one thing that sort of these bumps and, and hiccups in the cargo resupply program and just having getting cargo up over the last couple years with the failures we've had has really highlighted for me sort of how special the orbital ATK Cygnus vehicle is, being able to go and mate with several different launch vehicles. So I think that's been sort of a bright spot in some of these failures that we've had. Not that there aren't other bright spots, and certainly, you know, overall, these programs are quite successful, but it's certainly very good to have at least one vehicle out there that's flexible. Uh, cargo vehicle that can go to different rockets. Yeah, knowing like the next launch of the Cygnus will have an extra 300 kilograms, that really helps with the idea that some of these don't make it. We've had quite a few from each provider not make it now. So it's crazy though to think they say that, that everything is fine. But, uh, and they won't dip into water reserves until March, I believe. But these just need to start getting more dependable. And hopefully, as they keep doing them, they'll get more dependable, not less. But to see the progress have all these failures, something that does have more of a history, that's pretty disconcerting. It's very. And keep in mind, these bring up a lot of stuff. This one was carrying about 5,400 pounds of rocket fuel, food, water, and a new spacesuit, according to the lineup from Roscosmos. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's important stuff. They say it's, you know, it wasn't a critical mission, but it's still important stuff. Yeah, one of them was repairs to the uh, Russian toilet, so I'd consider that important. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, seriously. (laughs) When you're living in a sealed set of tubes. (laughs) Yeah, that was scheduled to be on board this one, so they may have to wait a little bit on those repairs, but... (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, once again, that's why redundancy, redundancy, redundancy. Exactly. <laughs> you have to have redundancies in all things. So we'll definitely keep an eye out and see what the issue was with that 
progress vehicle or the Soyuz or what exactly the issue was, because engineers are still working on that and doesn't seem like we'll have an answer anytime soon. But we'll keep an eye on that. Of course, we'll keep an eye on the HTV launching and SpaceX is supposed to have a launch sometime at the beginning of next year to the space station and Orbital ATK currently has a Cygnus resupply vehicle scheduled to launch, as you mentioned, on an Atlas V out of Cape Canaveral, also first quarter of next year. Speaking of SpaceX's return to flight, there's a chance that they may be flying again soon. And by soon, we mean before the end of the year. According to the website for Iridium Next, which is a satellite that is scheduled to launch aboard a Falcon 9, Iridium Next, quote-unquote, according to the website, will be launching on SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket on December 16, 2016, at 12.36 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Launching from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, the Falcon 9 will deliver 10 Iridium Next satellites into low-Earth orbit. They point out, and this is very important, the launch is contingent upon the FAA's approval of SpaceX's return to flight following the anomaly that occurred back on September 1, 2016. So there were rumors flying around that their return to flight might be out of Pad 39A at Cape Canaveral. But if this is true, and this is the actual satellite provider that is scheduled to launch aboard the SpaceX rocket, they are looking to fly before the end of the year, December 16th, out of Vandenberg. That's pretty quick. That's a three-month turnaround. Yeah, it is very quick. Is that concerning it's very or is quick, that good? But- it is what they said that they were going to do. It said that they were. That's what they've been saying that they're aiming for all along is to get this return to flight before the end of the year. Obviously, it's pending approval, so that's really the kicker on this. But I gotta hand it to SpaceX. They do tend to at least really try to live up to what they say. <laughs> yeah. Now the question is: Is it a good thing or a bad thing, and how quickly they're coming back? Well, I mean, if they know what happened, and there's a system in place to prevent this from happening again. Yeah. Good. If but if it encourages this sort of culture that that we've discussed before on the show where I'm not sure that they're always learning from the mistakes that they're making, then it's a bad thing. However, if if it doesn't do that, if it, it's if it's encouraging changes in in the culture, then I think it's a good thing. So I think it necessarily, or at least for me, in my opinion, when they return to flight isn't as important as have they learned sort of the lessons they need to learn about balancing being um, cost effective with also risk management. And of course, this is this is rocket, so you can never negate all the risks, but the risks that you take should be smart risk. I agree. I mean, orbital ATK took two years for their Antares to return to flight, and it worked like a charm, albeit they're not flying it again on their next one, um, but... But that's because of a NASA request, not because of inability to fly. Very true. Well, and also, they'd had a completely destroyed launch pad, whereas SpaceX Yeah, they have three currently active. They've got Vandenberg, they've got two at Cape Canaveral. One is a little charred at the moment, uh, and then the other right. is... Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's 39A. Yeah, which might be ready to go very soon. We, When I was there for Gozar, we drove right by it, and it's an active launch pad. They're getting it ready to go. And the other launch site, I should add, their Space Launch Complex 40, the gantry is currently taken down, and it looks like three of the four lightning towers have been fixed. Right. 
So, you know, the thing is that does make a huge difference in having extra launch pads available. And, of course, this is a launch pad clear across the country from <laughs> the uh, yeah. anomaly of last time. Well, so. hopefully, hopefully, they're, hopefully they don't plan any static test fires with the payload on top anymore. <laughs> that too, yeah, yes. That's, that's the thing is, uh, you know, we'll see what changes they make. Uh, they're not really required to tell us the same kinds of things that, say, you know, a government agency is required to tell us. So we don't necessarily know what's happening inside SpaceX unless they decide to tell us as far as how they're going to move forward. Yeah. Now, or until they until they know, launch a government payload because then right. there, there's requirements for that. Exactly. And this is not government. In fact, it's interesting that we have this launch being announced because we're getting ready to do a special episode on meteorite hunting in the Sahara and the Iridium network is what they used as their communication network for that trip. So I've actually been learning a lot about this network and about the company that's currently behind it. It was started by Motorola, but the people who are currently running Iridium, who are launching Iridium next, they are huge believers in SpaceX. They are all in on SpaceX. They used a number of different vehicles to launch the first generation of Iridium satellites, but the Iridium Next network is supposed to all go up on SpaceX. They have deals worked out with them where they actually as part of their package, they get a free launch if one of the launches fails. So it's an interesting customer to choose for a return to flight because this is a company that is 100% behind SpaceX and they're willing to take a risk with them. They have spare satellites that they can send up if there is a failure. They're ready to cope with that situation if they have to. But they also I'm sure, completely I'm sure believe they're, in them. They're, I'm sure they're getting some sort of incentive from SpaceX as well. I wouldn't be Oh, surprised. yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the, it's, it's just, it's, it's an interesting choice, I thought, because every time I read something about Iridium, I read something about how much they love SpaceX, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it has so. been, I mean, also, speaking of SpaceX, and then this is a little off topic, so hopefully we won't go too far down the rabbit trail. Over the Thanksgiving break, my mom and I sat and watched the first two episodes of that um, Mars special on Nat Geo, and it was surprising how much of a part of it is a very large SpaceX commercial. So SpaceX is certainly really heavily investing in their image right now. Yes, they, I mean, they and certainly are. And they had that big Mars announcement that we talked about that happened at IAC, which I do want to address something really quickly here. Yes, we received your listener comments. There were a few of you who were a bit displeased with our coverage of SpaceX and have over the years. I just want to point out, we call them as we see them. We try and be as fair as possible to all providers, whether it seems that way or not. And we're going to report the facts, and if it's our opinion, we'll state it's our opinion. So just letting everybody know that right now, that it may seem like we're SpaceX bashers, but we are absolutely not. I'm, I'm pretty sure I can speak for all of us when we say that our goal here is we want every space company to succeed. We don't want to see anybody fail. We hate seeing rockets blow up and setbacks and millions of dollars lost and a negative view of our space program. We want everyone to succeed. We want these rockets to launch and we want to get these cool new Iridium satellite networks and these amazing missions that were scheduled to launch. So we are not bashing SpaceX. We are just reporting what we see and giving our opinions. We all want them to succeed. Yeah, very well said, Sawyer. I think... We, we want to see SpaceX be successful, and the reason that we bring up the points we do is because we want SpaceX to be a better company. Well, and also, the truth of the matter is, 
we talk about SpaceX a lot because SpaceX does a lot. They do a lot. Yeah, they do great things, true. and we celebrate their great things. And the thing is, successes, it, we kind of all go, yay, this happened, and it was successful, and we move on to the next thing. Failures and or things that we might have trouble with, we do tend to talk about a bit more because there's more to talk about. And SpaceX does a lot of stuff that's both super successful and they've also had their failures and they've had their moments like that talk where <laughs> maybe our opinion was not the same as somebody who's just a fan of theirs. But like, I'm a huge fan of theirs, but I think there's some things they could do better and there's some things that they do great. And there's some things they do better than anyone. And they've um, certainly improved <laughs> over the years too, if you compare to some of our older absolutely. episodes where... <laughs> they were just reading tweets and press conferences. Now they've gotten much better at it. And if you want to hear a positive view of them, our CRS 8 episode, you can hear the difference in our opinions when they succeed and when they do well. We praise them. Yeah. And I mean, they're doing really amazing things. They and, are. Uh, I, I know our listeners know this, but I'm, I'm getting my PhD and I study space policy. And uh, right now I'm currently involved in some public opinion projects. And SpaceX has done a lot to raise the saliency or the importance and sort of the awareness of the journey to Mars, whether it's by a private company or by NASA or by ESA or China or any other nation, people are thinking about this and there's network television specials about this in part due to what SpaceX is doing and what Elon Musk has done. So I am so happy that they're part of part of the panoply of space companies. I mean, it's it, they're amazing Honestly, for, for what they've done. I run across a lot of people who think that SpaceX has taken over as NASA, essentially. Like, they know that they're a commercial company, but they think that NASA doesn't exist anymore and SpaceX is America's space company. Like, they're the one game. They're the only people. Well, you know what? In, you know? So, in some ways, <laughs> SpaceX is America's space company because a large portion of their funding comes from NASA contracts. That's true. Um, but that's so, true. But that's yeah. also true for a bunch of other companies. It's just that SpaceX is a lot better at getting their name out there. I mean, the jet, I'm like a general public people, a lot of them are very aware of SpaceX. They don't know what Orbital ATK is. They don't know. They've never heard of these companies they think Lockheed Martin is just a military contractor <laughs> you know <laughs> but they know SpaceX and they know that SpaceX is trying to go to Mars and they know that SpaceX is launching things yeah. and they know and part of that and and to be perfectly honest part of that is the fact that their name is SpaceX I know right it's <laughs> like, a great name <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty brilliant name I mean when your company has what it does in its name, it certainly makes it easier to identify with that industry. There's also the fact that, you know, Elon Musk owns it. I mean, let's be real. He is a celebrity in his own right, between all his companies and everything. And he's great at, at, at stirring that, you know. It's, it's a testament to what kind of publicity he creates, he generates, too. People admire him a lot. I mean, he was recently on The Big Bang Theory. You know, <laughs> he's a celebrity <laughs> beyond anything he actually does day to day. <laughs> he is. He's a household name, which to have he that is. in the space industry in 2016 when there's no shuttles flying, that's spectacular. It's amazing. No, no, no. With no shuttles flying, nobody knew names of people involved in the shuttle Good program. <laughs> General public Americans could not name one person who flew on a space shuttle or at least couldn't until Mike, Mike Massimino started doing things like Big Bang. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> a lot of Americans can 
just barely managed to name an Apollo astronaut. So really, it's an amazing thing that he has done, that his company has done, that it's something where the general public is actually aware that this company exists and is doing things. And they're more aware of SpaceX than NASA right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, like. so, yeah. Anyway. It, it might it might appear that way. I would I would have a I would have an academic argument with that, but I uh, certainly there's a there's certainly more there's uh, an undercurrent in the news right now. Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's you know the between the media and just general you know random conversations at diners. <laughs> it's just it amazes me. I, I, yeah, exactly. Not scientific at all. But it just amazes me. I'm very pleased that a lot of people can say the name SpaceX, that can come up with it off the top of their heads. That's very, very good. Exactly. And, you know, again, we want them to succeed and waiting for that FAA approval. And hopefully we'll get it very soon. And uh, Best of luck to SpaceX. And we'll be watching very closely for that first Iridium launch, which will be 10 Iridium Next satellites. And the other 60 will be launched on six other SpaceX missions. It's going to be an awesome network with these upgrades. It's, it's an incredible thing. For those of you who don't know, the Iridium network allows communications from and to anywhere on this planet, including both the North and South Poles. And it, it's a spectacular, life-saving thing for people who explore places. And so... Uh, Good luck to SpaceX and good luck to Iridium. I hope they get that approval and they get this launched nice and safely. Exactly. Before we continue with this episode, we need to add an update. This is recorded after our original recording date, which was Monday, December 5th, 2016. As of December 7th, SpaceX has released an official statement saying that, quote, we are finalizing the investigation into our September 1st anomaly. They go on to add that they are working to complete the final steps necessary to quote-unquote safely and reliably return to flight now in early January with the launch of Iridium-1. So as an update, this is the same scheduled launch. The date has now been pushed until no earlier than January 2017 with no official launch date set yet. However, we now know it will not be 2016, but sometime in early 2017. And now, back to the episode. Now, another company is also working towards their return to flight, and that is Virgin Galactic. I don't know if you recall, but in 2014, near the end of the year, during one of their test flights, there was an unfortunate accident which killed one of the two test pilots. But they have their next craft, the VSS Unity, ready to go. It took its first free flight this past Saturday, which was December 3rd. During that free flight, it reached a velocity of about Mach 0.6 and had a 10-minute descent and landed safely in the Mojave Desert. Now, this is a huge step. They've tried quite a few times to actually release the VSS Unity from White Knight 2, but unfortunately there had been many weather issues and a few technical glitches. But finally, it's on its way, and now that it has done its test flight, they've gotten so much data out of it, and... We'll see what comes. Hopefully, we'll be having commercial flights very soon. Also, we should thank uh, Mark Wilson on Twitter, who pointed out that it was happening as it was happening, because I'll be honest, I'd forgotten about it. Which, if there are any space stories that you see that we may not be covering or we may forget about, please tweet them at us at Talking Space or post it on our Facebook page or Google Plus pages. We're all called Talking Space. 
Yes, please. We love to hear from you. Oh, yeah, exactly. Again, with that, we got this great story. You know, Richard Branson's company out there, they've been working really hard since that accident. And there had been concerns because there had been a lot of celebrities that had signed up for these commercial flights, which were going to be suborbital hops. And we're going to cost about a hundred grand each. A bunch of people pulled out after that accident, but there were some that still said, we're going to stick it out. And the fact that they're flying again is a great start, even if it's not actually a powered flight, but a gliding flight. Hey, that's how the shuttle started too. So according to Virgin Galactic, hopefully we'll be seeing powered flights from them sometime in 2017. So we'll be keeping an eye on them the next year, along with their competitors, X-Core and Blue Origin, which have all made some big strides in those two years. So we've got a lot to keep an eye on in uh, commercial spaceflight in human commercial spaceflight, I should specify, as opposed to the other commercial spaceflight, which we had just been talking about with SpaceX and Orbital ATK. But we do have another launch upcoming, and uh, this is ULA's Delta IV Medium Plus 5-4. Boy, that is a mouthful. <laughs> In case you're wondering what that means, that is the Delta IV Medium rocket, which has one common core. It has a 5-meter fairing. It has four solid rocket boosters, and it will be carrying the WGS-8 satellite. Now WGS-8 is the eighth wideband global SATCOM spacecraft, formerly the wideband gap filler satellite. It is a geostationary communications spacecraft that helps out the U.S. military. This will be the sixth Delta IV medium plus 5-4 launch. <laughs> and holy cow, that is still a mouthful. Jeez Louise. Uh, but everything is all go for launch on Wednesday, December 7th, 2016. The launch window is from 6.53 to 7.42 p.m. Eastern Time, 23.53 to 00.42 GMT out of Slick 37B at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Hopefully by the time this airs, that launch will have happened successfully along with the HDV-6. In terms of other upcoming launches to keep an eye on, we've got a few more big ones this year. We've got a Pegasus XL rocket, which is launched from an L-1011 aircraft by Orbital ATK, carrying NASA's Cyclone Global Navigation Satellite System, or Cygnus, not to be confused with the Cygnus resupply vehicle. That will be studying tropical cyclones and how they grow over warm ocean waters. And again, that's launching from basically a rocket plane on December 12th with a launch window from 8.19 to 9.49 a.m. Eastern Time, 13.19 to 14.49 GMT. And then there's an Atlas V scheduled for December 16th, carrying Echo Star 19, which is a communication satellite for HughesNet in North America. Lots of launches happening. So uh, <laughs> we're going to wish all of them successes, and we'll keep an eye on those before the end of the year. So a lot of stuff coming out of Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, including a recent launch. For that, we're going to go a little bit back to November 19th, 2016, when an Atlas V 541 successfully launched the GOES-R satellite. Now, GOES-R is a geostationary weather satellite that is part of the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in cooperation with NOAA. The GOES-R launched successfully after delaying all the way till the end of their launch window at 6.42 p.m. Eastern Time was supposed to be a dusk launch, but ended up turning into a night launch after both a vehicle and a range issue, of which, surprisingly, 
United Launch Alliance did not specify exactly what it was, but what's most important is it launched successfully and is on its way. Now, I was there for the launch, and uh, if you want to know what it sounded like to have a 5-meter fairing with four solid rocket boosters on board, crank up your stereo speakers, turn up the bass all the way. If you're in the car, roll down the windows, make it as loud as you can, and enjoy. So that is the mighty Atlas V 541 taking off at a night launch where there was very little wind and a whole lot of solid rocket boosters. So, man, that sounded spectacular, and it looked ridiculously bright. And I'll be sure to make sure... Yeah, and you got some really good pictures of that, Sawyer. Oh, yeah. I'll make sure those pictures get posted in the show notes, and if not, they're also on our Twitter account, at Talking Space. So if you haven't seen them, I mean, I'm pretty proud of them. And you can actually see the fish jumping out of the water from the massive vibrations from this rocket. Now, once it is in space, this will be called GOES-16, and this is the first in NASA and NOAA's next-generation GOES satellites. They had described this as the equivalent of going from black and white to high-definition television in the amount of data that they will be able to have and the amount of information that they will be able to have and the speed at which it will come back at. They can study wider areas, they can study it in much quicker time. We're talking about anywhere from 30 seconds to five minutes, as opposed to the old three hours. I think it was put best by the GOES-R system program director for NOAA, Greg Mant. Here is how he described it. The 
first one. The investment in the ground system was really driven by the amount of data that's coming down from this mission. About you know 30 megabits a second was pouring down, and we're creating products on the fly continuously. And so you can never get behind or you'll, you know, the data will just stack up. So we're processing, putting products and getting to the weather service on that kind of uh, cycle, just immediately pass through in these data. So very perishable stuff like the, like the lightning data is getting to the weather service forecast within seconds. Uh, I had a forecaster, we, we ran simulated data runs of all this to many weather forecast offices. And the best way I've heard one of the forecasters says, Greg, in the past when you delivered the GO satellite data, you've been showing me loops of what has happened. You are now providing me a movie of what's going on right now. So in a sense, that latency is so short that this data is getting to their hands immediately and their, their excitement about how they can use it in real-time forecasting is, is really increasing. So there's a lot of, uh, my friend down at the end here will be very excited to use these data sets in his everyday forecasting. And that friend down at the end is with the 45th Space Wing who does the weather for Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. So, I mean, that's spectacular to go from basically what is happening as opposed to what has already happened. That's a huge change. In fact, in terms of the near simultaneous latency, we're talking about 30 megabits per second, which is faster than my internet speed here with Comcast. <laughs> <laughs> And a total of 1.75 terabytes of data a day coming wow. down for forecasters. They were talking about how they'll now be able to, you have so much detail that they can not only get a better idea of how much lightning is happening and see lightning that they had never been able to see before, but they'll be able to tell if lightning was a ground strike or not by the way it emanates through the clouds. Wow. Wow. So forecasters from all over the country and from all over North America and Central America were at this launch because it will be affecting all of them. And this is the first of four in their new generation network. Their old generation network has been going for 30 years now, if not longer. The program started in the 1970s. The current GOES network that is up there right now is about 20 years old. So we're talking a major upgrade, and these satellites are also supposed to last about 20 years. The second one of this group, GOES-S, which will become GOES-17, is scheduled for launch about 14 months from now. But once this gets up and going, it'll take about a year to get everything booted up and tested and ready to go. But once it does, this information will be accessible to forecasters around the world. And one thing that's really important is it's accessible to anybody. As long as you get the free software that will be available to the public, you can use it as a relay satellite to get that information directly from it. So anybody around the world, even if you're just a weather enthusiast, you can get this same real-time data that actual forecasters are going to be using. And that, I think, is spectacular, is making this citizen science as well as helping actual science. This is one of the things that makes our civil space program, and that's inclusive of NASA and the United States Geological Survey and NOAA, who is running the satellite, that really sets our nation's civil space program just apart. That we do all of these programs and all of these this really great science, and then we make it available to the public. 
it's amazing. And it is something that as an American, I am incredibly proud of that we do science like this and we make it accessible because who knows what someone will be able to do with that data. We've had discoveries made by citizen scientists in this country that have affected the way that we do life. And so just as an overall point, that's something that that I think is just really amazing about our civil space program. Yeah, the more eyes you can get on all of the data that's captured, the more possibilities you have of discovering something amazing from it, no matter whose eyes they are. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and not only that, but the ability to save lives with this information, because instead of getting data three hours later for a major storm, you're talking 30 seconds to five minutes of latency, that's it. Which, if you can get, if you can see this, that could save lives. Yeah, and it's especially important as as weather and weather patterns become more extreme. Like this is life saving data. And I say this as I'm currently recording this in the middle of a tornado warning. <laughs> yeah, that kind of brings it right home, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. So uh, this is a spectacular mission in cooperation with NASA and NOAA. We're really excited to see the data from this, and all the best of luck for all of the upcoming GOES launches, which we will be definitely keeping a close eye on. So this mission is, as we mentioned, NOAA and NASA, in particular the Goddard Space Flight Center. The Goddard Space Flight Center recently had a success in getting contact with a spacecraft they thought they had lost completely. Part of their stereo program, Observing the Sun, there was Stereo A and Stereo B. One of the two spacecraft went offline, and, well, they got communication back with it. I amazingly had the opportunity to talk to one of the astrophysicists who worked on the project, Terry Contrera, to talk about how they got the satellite back and what it means for their observations of the sun and what that means for us here on Earth now that they have that added to their amazing fleet of satellites. So go ahead and take a listen to this amazing interview. Can you talk a little bit about what the Stereo mission is? Basically, it consists of two spacecraft that are in orbit about the sun that are used to study space weather and stellar activity. So the, the mission was launched um, 10 years ago now, and these spacecraft are essentially pretty close to being in Earth orbit. One of it is moving a little bit ahead of Earth in its orbit, and the other one is lagging behind. So over time, they've, they've slowly separated from the Earth. Until now, they're both on the far side of the sun. Is there anything on board the spacecraft to be able to correct for that, or have you been able to use that to your advantage? Oh, that's the the whole point of the mission. We want to be on the far side of the sun. We want to be able to look at the sun from different points of view and sample different parts of the solar system to understand solar activity in three dimensions, essentially. Okay. So that's the whole point of Syria. We have a number of different missions that are essentially pretty close to the Earth. So we've been looking at the sun from the point of view of the Earth um, for a long time, but to really understand the structure of these different things that we're looking at at the sun. Um, We really want to have more than one point of view, sort of like most people have two eyes and it helps us see in three dimensions. So it helps to have telescopes looking at the sun from different points of view so that we can see the actual structures in three dimensions. Does that make sense? Wow, makes perfect sense. That's actually great. Yeah, consider it a feature that they're on the far side of the sun. The sun rotates about once a month, maybe once every 27, 28 days. So eventually we do see the entire sun, but it also evolves over time. We may have heard of something called sunspots. These are regions on the sun's surface that are are very um, magnetically active. And that's where we get a lot of our explosions of solar activity that can lead to what we call space weather. 
And, and those can evolve over the course of weeks. So it's possible for something very interesting to be happening on the far side of the sun that we wouldn't even know about until that part of the sun points towards us. So it's very useful to be able to look at the far side. Solar activity I've mentioned is, is things that happen on the sun. We've got various explosions called solar flares. Things blast off the sun. These are called coronal mass ejections or CMEs. And these can affect us here at Earth. They can affect our communications. They can affect power systems. So we're interested in them because they can actually affect our technologies. And, and the study of those is called space weather. Okay. So there were two spacecraft in the system, Stereo A and Stereo B. And I believe at one point you lost communications with Stereo B. Can you talk about that, please? About eight years into the mission, so two years ago, we lost contact with Stereo B. We were doing some tests and something we think went wrong with the pointing system. And it got, we think it got pointed so that the solar panels were no longer pointed towards the sun and the antenna communication antenna was no longer pointed towards Earth, and we lost communications with it. At the time, the spacecraft were preparing to, we were preparing for the spacecraft to go on the far side of the sun, where we would have had difficulty communicating with them anyway, because the sun is a, basically blocks them um, and interferes with radio communications and, and there are various other aspects to that. But once the spacecraft came out on the far side, um, stereo A is is fine and performing very well, but Stereo B, we started basically sending it sort of phone home commands about once a month, you know, trying to see if it was awake and if it could respond to us. And then, then in August, we actually did hear back from it so that we know that it is at least somewhat functional and um, is able to charge its batteries at least somewhat and respond to basic commands. At the time, we tried to, to send it some commands. Um, and we and it did respond, but eventually we it didn't completely do everything we wanted. And at this point, we don't have contact with it. Okay, so you've lost contact with it again, or you have contact and it just doesn't want to do what you're asking. No, at it this to. point, we we're not no longer in contact with it. We think there might have been a window where um, the solar panels were pointed towards the sun for a while, and so it could contact. Uh, so it, it was charging up and communicating with us for a while, and maybe that's no longer true. Hmm. So okay. we are still sending signals to it about once a month, and we're hoping it will come into contact with us again sometime, and then we can try give it another shot. That's some persistence to keep trying to communicate with the spacecraft for two years, and just to amazingly get a signal back. Yeah, I know. We were we were pretty pleased to know that it was functioning at least on some level. So that was very exciting. But getting these guys back is really tough. This spacecraft is really far away from us, and it, you know we have fairly limited information about it. So it's definitely a big challenge to try and get it back. But it's really great to have the opportunity to do it and know it's a functioning spacecraft. Do you know about how far away it is right now? Yes. Well, it's roughly on the far side of the sun. So we're about 93 million miles from the sun. So I'd guess about, say about 170 million. I had that calculated for the 10th anniversary, <laughs> but that was about a month ago. So it's, it's quite far away. Wow. So that's another advantage. With time, it will be coming around to our side of the sun again. So it'll be closer, and that means we'll be able to, the power will need to communicate with it. That situation will improve. I mean, right now, the signal is, is going to be pretty weak. Right. I mean, if it was working normally, it wouldn't be a big problem. We're communicating with stereo A just fine. But So how are you compensating for only essentially having one eye of those two on the sun with stereo A? Well, it hasn't been too big a problem at this point. Um, stereo A and Stereo B are in relatively similar parts of the solar system. 
Um, and so stereo A is still giving us a unique vantage point on the sun. So um, basically we can still get our science done with just stereo A, but we would very much like stereo B back. Um, it would give us another point of view that makes it easier to do things like space weather predictions for when, for instance, these CMEs will reach Earth. So it would be nice to get it back, but with stereo A combined with other observatories that we have closer to Earth, um, for instance, the Solar Dynamics Observatory or SOHO, the, um, which is another spacecraft um, basically along the Sun-Earth line, we can still get really useful information about, about the solar activity. Yeah, I was wondering how the stereo spacecraft, what their role is with that system like SDO and SOHO and now with some of the aspects that GOZAR that just launched recently will be adding. How do all these spacecraft work together to get a full picture of the Sun? Well, it's a, it depends on which instruments exactly you're talking about, but we definitely, all the different data that we have, it gets used. For instance, for tracing the path of these the solar storms, the coronal mass ejection through space, we have these instruments called coronagraphs on both the stereo spacecraft and on SOHO, and they show the sun's outer atmosphere, and they can be used to see the coronal mass ejection shooting off the sun. And with stereo, we had three points of view now with this stereo A and SOHO, we still have two. So we can use those and put them together to track the direction and the speed of the of the mass ejection as it goes out. And then those can be put into models of how they move through the solar wind out to the earth. Wow. So it's basically using all of these to get a 360 kind of view of the sun and its solar activity. Yes, that's right. Exactly. I mean, NASA has a number of different spacecraft out in the solar system. I should say NASA and other space agencies that work with NASA. And we use all those different data sources and all the different things they can provide us to try and understand all sorts of different aspects of the sun. That's spectacular. Yeah. In addition to the imaging, we also have sensors on board that measure the conditions at the spacecraft. So we can measure the coronal mass ejections as they go by the different spacecraft. We can look at what, what's called a solar wind, which is essentially the solar atmosphere blowing out into the solar system. And if you can have sensors in a number of different places to actually measure what that's like, then you can put all that different data together to get ideas of what's actually happening right there. Um, and so there are a number of different spacecraft that can help with that. Wow. And I have to ask you, it's been 10 years since this mission started. How do you feel about this spacecraft going on 10 years and the work that the two of them and each one individually have done? Oh, we found out they've been really neat. We've been able to, for instance, um, as the mission has progressed, we get to see the sun from different points of view and also the distance, the area between the sun and the earth. So for instance, stereo has been able to actually image these CMEs, these disturbances all the way from the sun to earth orbit. And that's a first. Um, and that was a really nice, nice result that we can actually do that. And then we have after the other stereo spacecraft and other, other spacecraft, like for instance, wind or ACE that are right there as the disturbance goes by, it can actually measure that as we, and we can see it at the same time. That really gives us sort of a global view of what these are like and how, how they can affect the earth. That's amazing. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Well, I, I've always found that combination of the imaging and what we call the in-situ data to be really, really neat. But we've also been able to understand better the way the coronal mass ejections move through the solar system and how they interact with the solar wind, which again can help us understand and be able to predict them better in the future. I mean, that's a big thing we're working on is, uh, I mean, as I said, solar activity can affect 
our technologies here at Earth. And we can do predictions to some extent, but we'd really like to get much better. And stereo has helped us understand better how these solar storms move through the solar system and, and what kind of things affect that. And that's been really helpful. And also to understand better what the structure of these are. We know that they're essentially these big sort of magnetic clouds that blow off the sun, but with only one point of view, we weren't really sure how that was structured exactly. I mean, you might see one of these CMEs from one point of view, it might look one way, then another point of view, it might look another way. And we weren't sure if we were seeing the same kind of thing from different points of view or if we were actually seeing different kinds of structures. So having different points of view really helped with that a lot. Yeah, it's amazing how we see the sun pretty much every single day and how important it is to everything we do both on Earth and in space, and yet how we're just starting to understand so much of it. Yeah, I mean, we're basically, I mean, here on Earth, I like to make the point that, of course, we humans have been living here a long time, and so things like space weather aren't a big danger to us here on the surface. But now that we're in the space age where we have all this technology that's in space, that spans the globe, and we're living right next to a active variable star, and we need to understand it so that we can live with it. And I know you and the entire heliophysics team over at NASA Goddard are working really hard to make sure that we can keep understanding this. So thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk about this. Okay, well, thank you very much. She was talking about all those different NASA missions. I should point out that it's not just the NASA ones. There's a whole bunch of other nations, Europe, Japan, all around the world that have spacecraft observing the sun and doing space weather, like she was talking about. But it's amazing. They got the contact back and a little bit of science back. And unfortunately, I've lost contact again. But they're going to keep trying. And regardless, it sounds like they're still doing some amazing scientific work uh, studying the sun and solar weather and how that affects us here on the Earth over at NASA Goddard there. So a huge thank you again to Terry Contreras for talking to us and to the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center for setting up that interview. And just a huge thank you in general to NASA Goddard. They have really been amazing about reaching out to us and, and allowing us to interview many of the scientists that they have there. And so we're very appreciative of that. Exactly. All right, as we get ready to wrap things up here, we do need to talk a little bit about space policy because, I mean, it's talking space. We have to mention it at some point. With the recent presidential election and with our president-elect currently being Donald Trump, he is in the process of getting all of his transition teams together. On November 29th, he officially announced that Chris Shank will serve on the landing team for NASA, the only person who has been named as of this recording date to that NASA quote-unquote landing team, the team that'll work with that transition. Shank has previously worked for NASA, as well as working on the Hill. Before this, he was the policy director for the House Science Committee, and prior to that, the deputy chief of staff to Representative Lamar Smith out of Texas, who happened to be the chairman of the committee. He has also served on the committee staff itself from 2001 to 2005. In that gap between then, he worked for NASA from 05 to 09 during the tenure of NASA Administrator Mike Griffin, where he was the Director of Strategic Investments, and then briefly worked at the Applied Physics Laboratory in Honeywell before going back to Congress. He was on the agency side of the transition process eight years ago as well, while he was at NASA when the transition happened from President Bush to President Obama. So, don't know exactly what this will mean yet for NASA's future, because there is still very little information as to what will actually happen to NASA. There's a lot of rumors, though. Yeah, exactly. And this is this is something that happens every time there's a presidential transition. Uh, the executive branch has a lot of 
input and control over what the nation's space policy is. So NASA was expecting a pivot of policy, sort of, they were expecting to sort of maybe pivot a little bit away from the journey to Mars and and focus on human missions to the moon, uh, because that's where the international space community is right now. And and we talk about this on the show all the time, and and our listeners are aware that, that the rest of the world is sort of focusing on human missions to the moon right now. So there are some big questions that Trump will have to make, and this is something we'll definitely discuss on the tr- on the show next year when we uh, return for our next season. And you know, but just so that you're aware, for our listeners, some of the things that Trump will definitely look at will be things like the space launch system, the journey to Mars. There's been some talk about Earth observation and, and that sort of science. What are we going to do with China? So there's a lot of a lot of questions to be answered, and we just do not have any concrete information other than guesses that we can make based on policy positions that were stated prior to the election and some of the policy positions of the transition team. So we look forward to discussing a little bit more of this space policy in the future, and it's definitely something I'll be watching because that's what I study. And we will bring you any news once we have it, whether maybe in time for the last episode of the year, but probably more likely when we when we pick up again with our next season. Exactly, because there have been a lot of rumors and stories and things flying around uh, that we don't want to discuss until they're concrete. So yes, there's a lot of information out there, but we want to make sure that we get it right and that it's official before we say anything that we have to take back later. So that's why we're keeping into that for right now, and we'll be keeping a very close eye on that transition for sure. Now, before we wrap up, there's a few little notes that we do just have to make here. I do want to send out a congratulations to astronaut Peggy Whitson, who recently launched to the International Space Station back on November 19th, 2016. In doing so, she became the oldest woman to fly in space at the age of, well, 21, we'll say to be nice, but actually the age of 56. She is one of the coolest astronauts out there. The fact that she survived a ballistic re-entry on the Soyuz and is back in space setting that record, she's just awesome. Another awesome NASA astronaut who we need to send our congratulations to is Katie Coleman, who just recently announced that she will be retiring from NASA by the end of the year. Katie Coleman was one of the first people to play the flute in space and even did a flute piece with Jethro Tull while she was aboard the International Space Station. If you've never heard that, check it out on YouTube. It is absolutely spectacular. But she was the mission specialist on STS-73. She was the mission specialist again on STS-93, which deployed Chandra, uh, and served some time aboard the International Space Station on Expeditions 26 and 27. She has more than 4,330 hours in space between her time on the space shuttle and the ISS. So... A congratulations to her on her retirement. In addition, we also have to send out our best wishes to Apollo 11 and Gemini astronaut Buzz Aldrin, who had a medical scare while he was visiting the South Pole. Uh, He appears to be okay at this time, according to updates from his official Facebook and Twitter pages. Um, But due to some minor health issues, he was removed from the South Pole and is currently resting up and healing in New Zealand. But regardless of that, he did still set the record of becoming the oldest person to visit the South Pole. So congratulations and best wishes at the same time to astronaut Buzz Aldrin. And with that, that brings this episode to its conclusion. So I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Kat Robinson. 
Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. And it was a very pleasant break from the hectic last week of the semester. <laughs> oh, yes. I do not miss those times. <laughs> and thank you as well for joining us, Cassie Tamanini. Ah, oh, thank you very much. It was actually kind of nice to get a little break from talking about meteorites, but only briefly, because soon we're going to have a very, very special episode about those. Oh, yes, indeed. We've got, I believe, two more shows left this year. We have one more regular episode and a special to hold you over through the holiday times. So keep it tuned to whatever you use to listen to us, whether that be Astronomy FM online or iTunes or Google Play or any other RSS feed of your choice or on our website, TalkingSpaceOnline.com, whatever you use. Keep it tuned there. Keep checking our social media pages because we've got some spectacular episodes to end out the year and the end of season eight, which I still can't believe which wouldn't have made it without you guys listening. So thank you for sticking with us and continuing to listen to Talking Space. Thank you for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.